my darlings, and welcome to Monstrous Femme. This is the horror podcast by women and queer people, for women and queer people, with a special focus on examining the idea of the monstrous feminine as it appears in media, pop culture, and everyday life. I'm Lilith Leone, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mickey Smith. Um, my other co-host, Ophelia Lovejoy, unfortunately, is not feeling well and is not able to enjoy join us today. But we are going to be joined by two very talented staff writers of our magazine, Daniel Sokoloff and Kat Lance. Welcome back to the show, Daniel, who was on our last episode in December. And welcome, Kat, who's our first timer. Would you like to introduce yourself, Kat? Hello, everyone. I am pretty active over on Instagram. It is conveniently my name, at Kat Lance. I write for Monsters Femme. I also write for a magazine called The Fundamentals that is almost entirely book reviews, though I'll occasionally do a what's coming list that is entirely focused on horror. Horror is kind of everything I want my life to be, uh, slowly yeah. working on my own stuff, so excited to be here. Yeah, that's that's the correct attitude to have on this podcast, for sure. Yeah. And um, Kat's writing is fantastic, and everybody should check it out, just putting that out there. It's great, and that is something that we can all agree on on this podcast, is that Kat is terrific. Um, okay, <laughs> so having established that, um, this episode will also be released on Kat's birthday, so go wish cat a happy birthday on instagram or something i don't know um but anyway um so how is everyone doing today how are you mickey first of all i'm fantastic for multiple reasons uh i'm now 26 years old oh, so that's cool happy birthday um, thank you very much and yeah. i'm trying out a new lip stain and a pass the bond me test so Ooh. that's awesome and also the lip stain is called lilith Oh, uh, damn. Like you got some of me on your lips. Oh, that sounded bad. Oh, I forgot I said that. <laughs> no, we can talk later. We can talk after the podcast. Oh, my yeah, gosh. So I'm really good today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get hey, too I'm, bothered, I'll, I'll, anyway. Yeah, I'm one rum and coke in. Don't tempt me, man. Damn, y'all are drinking. I, I got pink lemonade over here like a child. Y'all are I was I just drinking have lemonade been... today, too. I've been drinking lemonade and bourbon, so. The, the <laughs> trick is not to write like a drunk. You can be a drunk, but, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so that brings yeah. us to you, Daniel. How are you doing? Oh, hey, yeah, I'm great. Um, Yeah, I'm actually doing pretty good. Um, You know, I don't have anything to complain about. You know, okay. Well, you had to rewatch Mother, so you do. We're, you, we're going to get into your complaints later on in the episode. But I think yeah, you I, had to, I had to rewatch Mother and Antichrist. You're welcome, Lilith. Only yes. for you. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm working on my choose your own choose your own adventure style novel, which mm -hmm. I've titled Choose Your Own Demise because uh, Choose Your Own Adventure yeah. is, of course, copyrighted. So that's yeah. fun. <laughs> choose Your Own Demise is a way better title, though. Anyway, that's oh, yeah, a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I get to be really mean to my readers, you know, every time they die, too, which is fun. <laughs> yeah, that's the best. So um, this is going to be um, kind of a possibly more serious episode. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about serious things with a very fun and light tone, which will be interesting. But just a warning up top, as suggested by Mickey, thank you for the suggestion. We are going to be getting into some more serious topics. This is kind of an episode that's going to discuss two of the big things that I want to talk about and that this episode's kind of going to revolve around is feminine grief and feminine rage as they appear in horror media and also other pieces of media. And 
kind of what they just have to say about what they suggest about women when they do show up in media and this description's bad. But anyway, the point is we're going to be talking about grief. We're going to be talking about rage. We're going to be talking about the things that cause feelings of grief, feelings of rage. We might be telling some stories that are a little unpleasant. So just a warning up top, if you're dealing with grief right now, if you're coping with anything hard, it might be a tough episode to listen to um, and it's totally valid if you want to step away from it. But if you want to continue listening, we are, of course, very happy to have you here. So, um, yeah, so this is our big grief and rage episode, which I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, I've been going through some grief and I've been going through some rage and I've been listening to a lot of Olivia Rodrigo's album Guts which I've now um, yeah, made everybody else listen to as well. Um, <laughs> so I've been wanting to talk about that. So this one has been kind of in the works for a while. It's a little uh, little passion, passion episode for me, um, which that might be a good note to kick things off on because it's kind of a, although it's not really related, but I mean, kind of it is. I think that, well, Vampire, like Vampire definitely has horror elements. Did either or did, okay, did any of the three of you watch the music video for Vampire? Yes. You know, I didn't, unfortunately. And I'm really upset with myself because I love music videos. Yeah, go fuck yourself. And then... <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I'm the scum of the universe. I deserve it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, uh, if Spotify would have music videos, I would watch them all the time. Mm, and I think okay. they should. I think they yeah. should work on that for me specifically. They should. Yes. Okay. So we have two bitter disappointments, and then we have. <laughs> um, no, I get it. The music video is really fantastic. I do recommend both of you check it out at some point. It, it's not necessary for this episode. You're fine, but it is really interesting. I had a lot of um, pretentious analysis that I did of it. I don't think I'm going to get into any of it because it's really not relevant to this episode, and I think it will bore people to death but just know i analyzed that video and i had theories uh i just want to state that for the record um mickey what did you what did you think of let's just start with vampire because that's kind of the song that was like the big thing initially what did you think of the music video and the song mickey we'll start with you so in general i'm not usually a music video fan i like to make mm. up music videos in my head but yeah, um Per your request, I did watch it and I actually did really enjoy it. Her being up on that stage and uh, the crowd kind of not knowing what to do. It made me think a lot about how I've heard from actors and uh, comedians and things that when they stand up on stage, the audience is waiting for you to fail. Like they mm. have that, that waiting almost of like, when are they going to trip? When are they going to mm. And so I think that the audience being so lost during the entire music video and at one point, I think, panicking and everybody's yeah. standing up and freaking out. And I think with um, Olivia Rodrigo, her up on stage kind of having a breakdown, it was very interesting because like that discussion that you have from as an audience member and as somebody on stage, it was already dissipating very early on into the video. And I found that interesting because nobody was gaining that trust from one another. Um, mm -hmm. And then I, to be honest, I haven't seen the music video in a long time. I have been listening to the music though. Uh, at some point, doesn't she um, 
like the stage hands and things and the stage props start to fall apart and she yes. runs away. Yes. That is exactly what happens. And I do think it's also really interesting that at the beginning, before before the thing smacks into her and things start going wrong, it's like she's not aware that she's she's performing or in a music yes. video. It's like it's it's all it feels um is non-diegetic the one that I'm thinking of? I hope that's the right one. Anyway, it's either diegetic or non-diegetic. But it feels like it's um it feels like it's well what am I think? Diegetic is means it's happening. So then it's right. diegetic. Okay. So that's all right, thank you, Daniel. So it feels like it's diegetic initially. And then you're introduced to the element that it's no, it's not diegetic. This is a performance. But she doesn't seem to be aware of that. It seems like she's realizing that along with the viewer. And is having this like panic startled realization as we are realizing what this is. She's also realizing it and going, you know, how the fuck did I get here? And I think that's a really interesting choice. And I think it fits really well with the song where it's kind of about like realizing that you were in like a bad or abusive relationship and realizing it like too late after the fact, essentially, you know, after this person had already bled you dry. And then you realize, oh, and you're kind of like waking up to it. And so her kind of startled, panicked response as she's on stage and everything's falling apart, I thought felt really kind of uh, poignant and very, there's a lot of interesting parallels there with what the song is about and the content of that. So um, I think it's a really great music video is the point. And I love the song. The song got me hooked. It was like my song of the summer. And then I was really hyped up for the album. And then the album came out and I was like, oh my God, the album's amazing. And then I was very hyped up for the album. <laughs> I've listened to it far too many times. Um, and I think why I wanted to talk about it is, well, first of all, Vampire is obviously, you know, it's called Vampire. So I feel like we need yes. to at least acknowledge <laughs> that that is a song that exists and has come out fairly recently um, and was it was is popular i don't know i'm not on tiktok i don't know what the kids are listening to right the second so i don't know if i'm already being passe but i think that you know it was it was slash is popular for a reason and it's because it's um you know it slaps it's a very good song and it also it has a really interesting narrative to it as well and i think the music video and i also really like the fact that she flies like literally flies at at the the end end. because it feels very much like she's yeah conquered something and she's now come into herself and she's able to fly away from all of this bullshit basically and like she has like kind of self-actualized in some way so i do really like the music video. i know i said i wasn't gonna get on my theories about it and i'm already getting into my theories about it but i really like the music video i really like the song and so that got me into the album and then i think the whole album is very interesting because i think that a lot of the songs kind of tend to vacillate between either like being sort of some amount of anger or some amount of grief, some amount of like melancholy sadness or some amount of rage or both. And I love that because I don't, we don't have enough of that really. I don't think because those are emotions that women and female bodied AFAB people tend to be kind of discouraged away from. There's a lot of emotions, emotions in general, I would say women are kind of an AFAB people are kind of discouraged from expressing too much because obviously women are like told that we're too emotional and things so we try to already kind of um keep our emotions sort of low-key but then there are specific emotions that are even more charged within that that we're really discouraged from like rage and like depression and you know all these things that are you know uh selfishness and 
greed and all these different emotions that you could feel that that would be more acceptable coming from a man or an uh, an assigned male birth person. Whereas if it's coming from a woman or an AFAB person, it's it just is seen kind of more. I mean, and this comes up a lot in horror media too. Um, grief, rage. These are oftentimes a lot of things that are like triggering events in horror movies. What's the female characters? Um, if a you know somebody you know, there's a lot of like the there's the cliche of like you know oh the 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 final girl whose mother died or whatever. There's that. So right. you see the the grief stuff come up that way, and then you see the rage stuff like with for example, fatal attraction. You know, here's somebody that was like abandoned by jilted by her lover, feels rage, and then goes off the deep end. So it's seen as sort of a dangerous thing for for women, either dangerous in the sense that then they become the monstrous or they are victims of the monstrous. They are the final girl that is grieving her mother and now is, you know, attacked. So they're either the attacked or the attacker for feeling those things. And I think that I think guts is a really really powerful example of how those emotions can be expressed in a way that is that felt very cathartic to me listening to it and very just powerful and the songs are so good and right away the first one um all-american bitch such a great title also let's just acknowledge but that song you know it starts off with this like fleetwood mac type vibe and then transitions to this like pop punk vibe Mm -hmm. and is basically just harpooning the idea of like what the ideal woman should be. And I think that's great. I think that's a really interesting note that kicks off the album and that it has, and like literally she's screaming at the end um, for all these kind of like repressed feelings that she has. And that to me, I think is a very powerful opener that kind of sets the tone for the whole rest of the album and fits with the vibe. But anyways, these are some of my thoughts off the top of my head. (laughs) Did any of you have thoughts just off the top of your Stop your dome that you wanted to share about the album well on a musical point this actually mm-hmm. came up like a couple weeks ago because i have a playlist that i made that i kind of call my my fuck you playlist my it's like a workout <laughs> yeah. playlist but also a get through a really bad day at work playlist yeah. and i was looking through it and i realized that they were all male singers oh. and i was like oh that's interesting why is all of my like mm-hmm. i'm better than this things are gonna get better but also i hate you like why is all of that genre of music like why are these all just dudes and so i started making another list and i was like i don't know if i want to mix them in all these female rage songs but they feel so separate that Mm. i wanted to keep them on another playlist yeah and um, uh, i'm sorry yeah no the um the the pain that a woman feels would be very different from the pain a man feels. I mean, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh, Olivia Rodrigo might end up there. It's not normally what I listen to. I liked it more than I thought. I think if I was a lot younger, I would have had it on repeat, like, yeah. every day. Um, it would have yeah. been a vibe. <laughs> yeah, which I'm I'm turning 25 in March. Am I the youngest one here right now? Usually Ophelia's the youngest. Right? Yes. All right. Well, that's, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but, um, I'll be the baby for the episode, I guess. Anyway, yeah. So I think it's interesting hearing that too, because for me as somebody, I, for me, it, I think it hits different for a few reasons also. Like for one thing, like the, the ballad of the homeschooler song, like as somebody that was pulled out of school and not really properly socialized and has a lot of 
issues with socializing as a result and feels um, very sort of like insecure about her socializing abilities. That song like really like hits home for me. So there's a lot of there's a lot of songs in this album that cut deep and like the Teenage Dream one. I'm obviously out of my teenage years, but they're very recent. It's a very recent past for me. So it feels still really resonant. And I think that's, I do think that's key too, because it definitely is a, it is a youthful skewing album. And so I do think that, which I also think is great because I think that I really like the idea of young women in particular being shown like they can express these emotions, they can have these feelings and that is perfectly normal and okay to feel rage, to feel sadness, to feel grief, to feel disappointment with themselves, to feel whatever it is that they're feeling. And I think this album really takes you through kind of a wide range of emotions. And um, so that's kind of another thought I had. And uh, Daniel, did you have something you wanted to share? What, what did you think of the album? I really liked it for one part. Um, mm-hmm. Hang on, let me let me open up my notes here. So between the Teenage Dream, I also really liked. I felt like it was one of the best composed songs on it. Um, in particular, uh, obviously I'm 33, so you know my teenage years are you know somewhat uh, over the mountain for me, but. Um, it took me back to when, um, you know, I had this Marilyn Manson song I used to listen to, um, Putting Holes in Happiness. And he has the line, you know, blow out the candles on all my Frankensteins. At least my death wish will come true. Uh, you taste like Valentine's and we cry, you know, you're like a mm-hmm. birthday. And uh, mm-hmm. man, uh, the, the bit where she's like, I'll blow out the candles. Happy birthday to me. Right. And mm-hmm. yeah. like, I felt that really strongly. I also really connected with um, Get Him Back. <laughs> Yeah, that's was, a great one. Yeah, because when I was looking at the track list, I I, I thought it was going to be one thing, but then it turned out to be this 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 uh, almost fiendish kind of like petulant, yeah. like we're going to get him back, we're going to we're going to take this guy down. And I love the way she vocalizes in it; like she sounds yeah. scary. You know what I mean? Yeah. She sounds and adorable and yeah. scary. Like she's going to put a knife <laughs> in your back. Yeah, and it's interesting because it has such a great conflicting emotional thing where she kind of, on the one hand, wants to get back together with this guy, and then on the other hand, she wants revenge against this guy. Right. And we don't, I love that sort of complicated feeling two things at once thing for specifically for a female artist. Because again, mm. you know, we don't, we don't have enough of that. I don't think where, you know, not only is a woman feeling something very deeply, but she's feeling two conflicting things at once. She's feeling like, I want to get back together with this guy, but also fuck him. And I want revenge on this guy. Exactly. And like, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's a very interesting song. And, um, so Mickey, I think, did I just ask you about Vampire? Did I ask you about the album? I think I just asked you about Vampire, right? My bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I will give you the floor. Uh, I, I was just thinking when we were discussing how, when Kat brought up how uh, those kind of fuck you songs, if sang by uh, a male-led group or a female-led group, how they just feel so different, like they need to be separate. And I think that that's because when a uh, a woman decides to show her anger it's because she's already at the end of her rope and it takes Mm. like almost an extra decision to be able to show that anger that rage that grief because Mm. it's kind of indoctrinated into a lot of young women that those emotions are meant to be felt in private yes you are meant to keep it to yourself to make sure nobody else is uncomfortable Mm-hmm. Because it is a difficult emotion. But yeah. for men, I feel like a lot of the times they are 
perhaps not praised, but it is expected for them to wear that emotion on their sleeve. It is expected for a man to get angry. Like whenever I've shared some personal difficulties or personal stories about getting hurt by someone, if I tell a woman, it's usually, I'm so sorry, I'm here. If you ever need to sit and talk, like come to my home. And for a man, it's usually like, fuck that person. I'm going to fuck them up. Where are they? I'm so pissed on your behalf. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the difference. The difference is the decision to wear that emotion outwardly, to experience that emotion without thinking about how it's going to affect every single person around you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in this album... Being so forward with these emotions, no matter how messy they are, no matter how confusing they are, Mm -hmm. being so forward with them and not saying like, oh, I'll just allude to them, but literally saying like, fuck this guy, I'm going to get back at him or this person screwed me over and bled me dry. He's a vampire, fame fucker. Mm -hmm. Like that takes such confidence and I think bravery, but I also think that immediately it made me recoil in a way of oh my god how many times has this chick been hurt like why is she at the end of her rope like that kind of thing yeah and i hope that in future generations like like the teen the upset (laughs) angry angry teens and tweens sitting in their bedrooms Mm -hmm. like listening to this on repeat i almost said on their ipod nano but that's not it (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm projecting a little bit (laughs) I still use um, the iPod, and I'm the youngest one here. So as far as I'm concerned, they're still hip with the young. Oh, <laughs> I still have an iPod in my drawer, dude. She's my yeah. ride or die. <laughs> I I really hope that the people, the young people, the younger generations listening to this album and seeing somebody that they can look up to being so forward and outward with those emotions that we almost title as, quote, ugly emotions, unquote. Yes. I yes. hope that they can drop the vanity and drop the embarrassment and experience yes. those emotions more forwardly. Yes. Um, so that's my opinion of kind Which of. Which is great. It's a great opinion analysis, I think. And I think you're a hundred percent spot on with everything you said. And Thanks. yeah, it is really interesting that you're totally right, which I hadn't really considered that, that when women do kind of, when we see them feeling those feelings, it's like they are at the end of their rope. You're very right. That's a very good point. And I hadn't really considered it. They're at the end of their rope. Whereas men don't necessarily have to get to that point to be expressing, certainly not anger. I think obviously there's a, there's like a, a certain level of shame around men expressing vulnerability, sadness, you know, crying, things like that. Which but should also, anger, I hope, yeah. be unlearned in the next generation. Yes. Cause... Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But with anger, it's very normalized. Whereas for women... I mean, and you hear that a lot with like the first song, The All American Bitch. She talks extensively about how, you know, she doesn't get bothered by things and she just has like, she's, you know, poking fun at the idea that she's just basically cheerful all the time and, you know, in good spirits constantly and pleasant to everybody around her because that's just not, it's not realistic, but that's what we expect and want of women. And I think there is this real, there is this real shame. I think it's also kind of like, I, I think it for, for me, weirdly, I, one of the things that I associate it with is I think of like how I remember sitcoms that I would watch when I was younger, like how they would make fun of like 
women that were premenstrual. And, you know, the joke was that, oh, they're crying all the time or they're yelling all the time. They're either, you know, the, the sad, you know, sad, annoying crier or they're the angry, annoying bitch, basically. And I think that those two emotions in particular, sadness and anger, are very charged with with uh, how they're depicted with uh, feeling by women and AFAB people in media, because we do have this these sort of negative associations that, oh, yeah, that's typical of women that they're going to be they're going to easily be sensitive and cry or they're going to be bitchy and they're going to yell and be mad and be a joy kill. You know, we have these these sort of preconceived ideas. I think one of the things that's great, too, is that. Olivia Rodrigo on this album really allows herself to feel these feelings that are stigmatized specifically for women and also allows herself to to paint sort of a uh, like anti-heroine, somewhat villainous, somewhat unlikable mm-hmm. picture of herself at times. You know, like in the Get and Back song, she talks about like keying his car. Like she talks about yeah. things and things that people would, you know, frown upon. And it's like, she's very unapologetic about this. She's just stating bluntly, you know, and like, uh, this is a bad idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. Like, she's very much, it's really interesting with the songs and how that comes up. I think another another song that I wanted to touch on that I think is really interesting is Lacey, one of my personal favorites mm-hmm. on the album. I think there there's a, I think there's a discussion sort of around, is it like a queer baiting song? That's not how I personally interpreted it. Personally, as somebody that is basically straight more or less um i saw it as like a feeling that i could relate to where it's like a where you have these women in your life that are so gorgeous and so perfect and you sort of idolize and admire them and there's part of you that sort of wonders is this like a romantic fixation or is this an i want to be them fixation and also then there's another part of you that may at times start to turn resentful and bitter toward them because they seem so perfect and you feel like you're falling short of that. And I think she captures that really well in that song where it's like she has all these mixed, complicated feelings for this person, such admiration, such possible romantic feelings that are kind of nebulous to her and to us. And then also resentment and bitterness and hostility that feels unearned. But that's how she feels to this person because this is like the perfect woman. And it's kind of reminding her of the fact that she, like she says in the song, I'm not doing well. Like she's, she's at a very different place in her life than Lacey is. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, I really like that. So it's very, I think it's a very sophisticated album because you could have like conversations like this endlessly about pretty much can all I, this. Can, can I interject actually? I just have something quick to say. I, I hate cutting people off, um, but yeah, yeah, no. Um, I just, I think that that's really valuable because frankly, I, I took the song the wrong way. I, I think that what you just said is probably closer to what it is than that. Mm. I, was like, I was like, oh, okay, she's queer or something, whatever. But like, no, that's that's right. Yeah, be, being a woman, and I once had it explained to me um, by this really awesome poet that I met at a open mic night that um, from a young age, as a woman, you're taught that the one thing you have to offer the world is yourself. Yeah, and being chosen is the kind of the end goal that society kind of hands you like yeah you, you can you, you can bust out of that but it takes a lot of work and you end up losing a lot of the things that are valuable that make mm-hmm. you valuable as a woman as mickey was so you know eloquently stating yeah. Yeah. um but yeah no i mean like you're surrounded by these women that have these qualities and you just you don't want to be them but you want what they got you know and yeah 
Yeah. yeah, vacillating between love, admiration, and just mm, boiling. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. yeah. And you're not going to get that. Yeah, you're not going to get that from a male singer, is what I'm saying. So yeah, yeah, it's a very complicated and something that is kind of unique to the female experience or to the AFAB experience more generally. I think are sort of like feelings like that, and so that's really interesting that you had a different read on it because there is. And I think that's what's great about the album too, is there is I, sort I, of... I, I am a filthy cis male, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're part of the club. We, we welcome you with open arms, but there is that layer where okay, so, it so is... I, so I, I can say the C word, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. I give you permission, but I don't know that other women. The thing is, there is that layer where it feels very much like a like she is so much of the album is so much from a pe female perspective and so much about the female experience that it doesn't surprise me that a song like that could be totally misread by a male listener because it is those sorts of feelings are so specific to I mean I tend to think of them as very specific toward what women experience and what I imagine also some AFAB people that might not identify as women but are, are female bodied because there is still if you're if you're anybody that is has a feminine frame you're still subject to that kind of scrutiny i would say you're somebody that it looks like a woman or presents as a woman even if you don't identify as such you're still subject to that scrutiny you're still subject to those expectations and so i think it's very easy to still feel those feelings toward other women where you're admiring them you're kind of wishing you were them wishing you look like them and you might feel a little bit of jealousy a little bit of bitterness a little bit of resentment even even if you're the most feminist person in the world and realize you should not be feeling that way toward them, it can still kind of creep up on you. And it's sort of that sort of ugliness and the fact that she kind of allows herself to go there and to, to show that vulnerability and that like kind of um, that harshness, I think is really profound and meaningful because we don't really get a lot of that. And it's, very, it's a very nuanced thing. I but, think that those yeah. emotions like also very much live deep within uh afab people that it's not supposed to be spoken about because then you're labeled yes. as as jealous yes. you're labeled as somebody who um it's almost like you're you're viewing this almost competition uh against this other person yeah and um i don't like it just it's such a difficult feeling to explain but i think it's very universal for afab people yeah i've yeah. definitely had many experiences especially being somebody who is uh trans who's plus mm -hmm. sized who uh i'm somebody that i don't really connect with my femininity because i think that being feminine is to be in danger from the things that i've been through mm. and so it's a very difficult emotion to feel when i see another afab person or um, if I see a woman and it's like, God, she's beautiful. She's kind. She always mm -hmm. seems to be in a good mood. She um, does all of her work so well. She's tidy. Like she, she exudes femininity and uh, in this way that I cannot possibly do or be. And then mm -hmm. that love, that admiration that I feel for that person then turns to that really shameful feeling of jealousy and i think that that's shown very well in lacy and when i listen to it i like 
as a trans queer person, I didn't read it as queer at all. <laughs> I read it as that that um, yeah. platonic love that just goes so far over the edge of love that it then just turns into seething jealousy and upset and like, yeah. oh, <laughs> there goes Lacey. Of course, she has perfect hair today. As yes. I'm looking at my own hair, that's looking not so great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, that's the mark of my own hair. <laughs> you can be saying two things at once, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, of yeah. course. I mean, it's art, and right. art is very much in the way that we perceive it personally. We are always, always yeah. going to see art through our own personal lens, and we can try really hard to see it through other lenses as well. Different mm-hmm. bias dot biases and biasy come on um, english major biases. come on english major yeah, i don't know biases, I, think. I, I would say biases that's what i say yeah i biases. default to daniel i think daniel's probably more expert daniel seems to know all God, the things so i'll just like, sure. hey, i feel like hey, i should that, know that english this. degree is the most expensive piece of paper i own all right <laughs> <laughs> but uh it's difficult to view art without a bias and without yeah applying your own personal uh, experiences to it. And so I think yeah. that's why I saw it as a platonic uh, putting somebody up on a pedestal and viewing them and loving them and hating them at the same time. I think right. that's a exactly. deeply difficult emotion. And I think of that jealousy for AMAB people typically comes from what people have what they accomplish but for afab people i feel like it comes from what that person personally exudes how Mm. they look how they experience the world how they go about situations themselves kind of like what daniel was saying earlier what he learned from that poet that women all they have to offer is their self that's what makes them the most valuable and so I think that Lacey is just kind of an epitomized version of that self that yeah. people aspire to and want, but mm-hmm. you get pissed because you can't be that. <laughs> yeah. And how dare they do that yeah. <laughs> in front of me yeah. right now? Yeah. How could you? So it reminded me a lot of that, listening to that song and a lot of other similar relationships I've had with other women in my life where it's just like, why can't I, why can't I be this? And then really what you're feeling is the resentment toward the expectations, the standards, the things that, that people want from you that are unreasonable, but it gets channeled and funneled toward sometimes that one specific person that represents those things. And that's kind of the unfortunate reality. And I think that's also a nuance that's missing with a lot of like, we see a lot of stories of like female jealousy in media. It comes up in horror media, it comes up in other media. Uh, like Fatal Attraction, mentioning that earlier. You know, we have the jilted other woman that then tries to ruin the family and the, you know, so we have that sort of example. But we don't really have this nuanced take where it's like, you know, this person feels a certain level of bitterness and hostility that's not warranted, but it's not because she's a bad or mean person. It's not because she's holding a grudge that's unfair against this person. It's because she just really admires her and wishes that she was as perfect as this person seems. And that's very human and understandable. And I think it's also interesting because something similar comes up in another one of Olivia Rodrigo's songs from her previous album, um, Sour, which is a song Happier, I believe is the name. Um, like you, Mickey, were just saying 
somebody beautiful and somebody kind. And when you said that right away, th this song popped in my head because she quite literally <laughs> says she's beautiful, she's kind. Because she's talking about essentially her former boyfriend is with a new woman and she's looking at pictures of them thinking that this girl looks so perfect. And she initially is like, I'm, you know, my mind trying to cut her down in order to make myself feel better. But there's really nothing I can say that will accomplish that because ultimately that just reflects badly on me. And she looks beautiful and she looks kind and she looks like she's probably a great person, you know? And I love that she had that, that moment, this reflective moment of like, I want to cut this person down in my mind because I'm feeling this jealousy, this knee jerk jealousy that I think a lot of people would feel, but I'm not going to because she hasn't done anything to me. There's no reason for me to feel hostile against her. This is just a reflection of my own insecurities. And I thought that that was, again, like a really self-aware moment, especially for somebody her age. Like, I'm, I'm really kind of astounded that she has that level of self-awareness and kind of that these sort of astute observations and things and is able to so coherently and cohesively put together something that really makes statements on, on womanhood and on the female experience and the female perspective and is so vulnerable and so willing to go to these dark places. I do think it's pretty amazing, especially considering her age, that this is, it feels very present tense. I think a lot of the times with difficult feelings, we get the retroactive perspective mm. of yeah. I'm looking back at my past and yes. processing things, or I can see now that things were bad, but I'm on the other side and I'm telling you the story. Yeah. And I think like one of the overwhelming feelings I had when I was listening to this, I was like, are we sure she's okay? Like, yeah. has anyone yeah. checked in on her? Has anyone hugged her recently? It feels so in the moment. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so captivating because it's that immediate honesty of I am experiencing this right now. How old is she? She's 20. Huh? Oh my. She's 20. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. You know what? Okay. The kids are going to be okay. The kids are going to be okay. <laughs> They're going to be alright. It is it is disheartening to think about that that somebody that's only 20 has already had these experiences and that that doesn't seem unusual to me. I feel like a lot no. of girls I know that are young have already experienced these things no matter how young they are and that's it's depressing. But that is sort of it's kind of um and that's another thing that's a shared thing among the female experience and the AFAB experience is that hardship is such a, a commonality amongst us. And kind of going through these things, being exploited, being used, being mistreated, being vilified, being objectified, being whatever, we're so kind of used to that from such a young age and conditioned to kind of accept these things, go along with these things, and to kind of, you know, be ashamed of ourselves and be ashamed of various parts of ourselves, whether it's how how we look or how we act or how we feel. Um, and so and just keep it all inside. Yes, exactly. And so it's really it's it's very sad that she's already had these experiences at such a young age. But I do, you know, I think that it's great that she's able to at least channel it into really meaningful and impactful art that will hopefully make a difference in the lives of other young girls and, you know, help them cope with these things. So yeah, bad idea. So well. uh, I really appreciated being uh, hearing the other side of that uh, kind of uh, interaction because I've gotten that text a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like, especially from my last ex who, hey, Dan, how's it going? And it's like, oh, all right. All right. I'll, uh, I'll grab my bag, you know. 
<laughs> like she's like, you know, bad idea. Seeing you tonight, fuck it, it's fine. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that that's probably what was going through her mind when she was like, eh. the grudge needs love. That's awesome. Oh, I liked that oh. one a lot. Yeah, I I love I love the grudge. I think that's such a great song. Um, also the name of a horror movie. So which another- I've seen. Yes, yes, I have not seen that one. I you know what? That. I actually haven't seen the Japanese one. I've I've seen the Japanese Ring, and I haven't seen the the you know the the American you know remake. But I've only seen you know the American Grudge. Sad. Wow, Daniel's really showing his ass this episode. <laughs> Bro, I was about to show mine by saying I thought that they were the same movie. No. Oh. <laughs> oh, Mickey! Well, no, you're not capable of showing your ass. We'll just pretend you didn't say that. We didn't hear. It. But um, yeah, we, I think we, that... we need to cut this whole segment out. It's going to tank our careers. <laughs> yeah, I love we're never working in this town again, bro. Oh. <laughs> but um, Cat, as somebody that's seen The Grudge, is there any connective tissue between the song The Grudge? <laughs> the Grudge. Not really. I mean, if you squint and you want to get, like, really, really meta about it and, like, really try to make symbolism connections about what the grudge was saying and how you can be haunted by pain, we can get there. We can build a tenuous bridge, but I'm going to say it's not there. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, Daniel's the final authority on this, so if he allows it, it's good with the rest of us. <laughs> but I think that's that's really interesting, though. Yeah, it's it's a great song, and that again, I think, is another thing also where it's like a thing that women and AFAB people are discouraged from feeling is like, you know, we're discouraged from holding grudges, we're discouraged from being, you know, bitter, from being petty, from being resentful, from from holding on to feuds. You know, we're kind of labeled as catty and things if we if we dare to dislike somebody else or hold something against them. And so that's a really great song and that it illustrates really beautifully how, you know, how the, how it's so much more nuanced than that and how, you know, it's entirely possible that somebody could want to move on from something like that and not really be able to and be haunted by it, like you were saying. So, yeah, The Grudge is great. It also you know, it was in yet another example of illustrating those things. And also, um, one other thing that I should maybe note before I move on is Pretty Isn't Pretty. Great song, too. And again, speaks to feeling like you're not enough as a woman. You're not, no matter how pretty you are, it's never pretty enough. And I think that's a really also fantastic observation that is just kind of like, th- there's so many great and kind of revelatory observations, I think, in, within this album that are just um, kind of disguised within very catchy songs. I think it's important also when we're talking about grief and rage, you know, they're very interconnected feelings, I think. And I think we see that also with like the stages of grief, for example, Um, anger is the second phase of second stage of grief. If you're a believer in the stages of grief, Uh, which I don't really necessarily know if I follow the idea that they always go in that order and it's, you know, neat and sequential like that. But I do think that you kind of tend to feel all those things when you are grieving. Maybe you might feel them all at once. Maybe you might feel them out of order or whatever. But like, I do think that those are pretty accurate to the grieving process. So first, first phase is denial. And the second one is anger. So literally right after denial, your initial response supposedly to grief is to be angry about it. And again, like, it's just nice to see 
depictions of that in media. And one of the things that I want to talk about is hereditary, because I think that also does a really good good job of showing yeah. grief and anger and the intersection of the two, especially mm. in the dinner scene, which is so fucking good. And Tony Collette is so fantastic in it when she's when she does the whole monologue to her son and is just like finally letting her fury out. And it just comes from this place of like total grief and also mm-hmm. sort of this um kind of lingering resentment and hostility toward her son that she didn't want to be a mother to, which is another very interesting feeling that again women aren't supposed to feel. You're never supposed to feel like, oh, I wish I hadn't been a mother. I wish I hadn't had my child. That's extremely taboo, extremely mm-hmm. like verboten to say. So that it's there's such great stuff within that movie. Um, so that's a, that's a movie that I think really gets to the heart of kind of the intersection of grief and anger and how it can feel to be a woman who's trying to keep a handle on those things or suppress those things and is struggling underneath the weight of that. Um, but what are what are your guys' thoughts on Hereditary? Boy, I have a lot to say about it, but um, does anyone else want to go first? Okay. Please go ahead. Great. Um, yeah, so I actually had a very... Um, this was my first time watching uh, this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't care for Midsummer. I thought it was garbage, but um, Hereditary... <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I, I missed Hereditary. I had no idea. But um, I have to say, Ari Aster, um, when he's just directing people uh, speaking and doing their thing, he is second to none. I mean, yeah, he's, he's yeah. really excellent at composing yeah. scenes i really love this movie's dollhouse motif i think it's exquisite um, oh yeah that's fantastic um, too yeah mm-hmm. the way he uses space and uh here's the thing um i'm kind of go- into goetic demons uh, goetia mm. um for a while uh when i was fortune telling i i would um role play with some of my clients um who believed they were in relationships with demons and i, I knew all the sigils and the different things and i gotta say um uh, actual magic uh, as is depicted in this movie is kind of a rich person's game. You need a lot of gold and silver and you need to chart the moon a lot. (laughs) But I I had, yeah, I had a really weird experience with this movie because um, I had a sister pass away um, when I was younger. I was four going on five and she drowned in a pool. And uh, my mother, it's, I mean, you know, I've had many years to deal with it. But, um, you know, my mother was never quite the same. Um, She had underlying problems. Much right. like our hero in this movie, um, yes. our tragic hero, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But uh, yeah, I felt like I was, you know, I mean, I felt like I was in some way watching that play out on the screen. Um, the big thing I had with this, though, uh, this movie and and Antichrist, um, they both have this aspect of horrible things happening to the man because he doesn't listen to his wife, like. Mm. Like there's this there's that wonderful scene where she's telling him, please, I need you to burn this grimoire because yes. like, you know, things are happening. It's out of my control. Yeah. We let the spooky into the house. And he's yes. like, honey, I'm not doing this with you anymore. And she's like, God damn it. And she fucking snaps and throws the book into the fire and he combusts because, you know, th- they didn't follow the rules or whatever, you know? Yes. And yeah. Yeah, mm. I also I also really thought that this was an incredibly clever twist on the length, lengths women have to go to just to gain a little bit of power. Yeah. Like, mm. Yeah, like selling out to this horrible entity, um, yeah. sacrificing generations of your family. Like, yeah. also the, the little bit um, we've what did they say? Um, I forget. Uh, it was Paimon, right? We've corrected Paimon's mm. female body. I wrote that down in my notebook. It was such a yeah. killer line. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, whoa, dude. Um. So, yeah. And it was also it's interesting also from that perspective because here it's a essentially a depiction of some form of witchcraft. I guess also demon worship, but like it's mm-hmm. kind of I think would be classified also broadly as like a a witchcraft thing. And we tend to associate that with women, you know, a coven of witches and like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and so it's a really interesting thing to show underlying misogyny even within that. Well, and that's I, that's the thing too, because like, um, women worship, uh, women and demon summoning and so on, demon worship, it it has a sexual connotation to it because what, what do you think is happening right. at the Black Sabbath, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. they're hooking up with the devil. They're getting right, yeah. and they're being rewarded with earthly, you know, power. Right. Yeah, I've been there. I've been there. We all have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean, who hasn't given the devil a blowjob? You know. Uh, can I get like the evite next time? That actually sounds like a good time. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll CC you on that. I'll, but I'll send, um, I'll, I'll, I'll send a Cthulhu over. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's a really, it's a really great observation. And uh, what about who should I go to next? Mickey or Kat, who feels like talking? Kat, have you seen the movie? So, A Miracle, I actually have. I watched it last year. Um, I truly, I cannot stress enough how few movies I have seen, but I did finally watch that one. And. I think I just had to sit for a while after it, just trying to process everything mm-hmm. and figure out, because I don't want to say that I enjoyed it, but yeah. looking back, I did. I was just so deeply unsettled the yeah. whole time. And yeah. I do, especially the seance scenes that happened between mm-hmm. multiple of the women in that story and the that kind of perversion of hope Mm. was so well done because the minute it slips, everything just starts to go downhill from there. And I thought that was really fantastic. Mm. Yeah. 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 Can I I offer something too? Go Um, for it. This is big. This, uh, so back, um, back when I was in college during my last semester, I took a class on, you know, the Gothic, right. Which, you know, weirdly that should have been the first class I took, but it wasn't. But anyway, (laughs) um, my professor, she said something so profound to us. Um, we were reading, um, short stories about lynchings, right. Um, and they were all really horrifying and upsetting and I, I didn't want to read them. Um, and we're, we're chatting about them and she says, she's asking us questions. And then finally she says, okay, did we like these stories? And nobody mm. wanted to say anything because a lot of us are, you know, a lot of us were, you know, not people of color, right? I mean, I'm right. Jewish. I don't, you know, I'm situationally white, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know. Private. Yeah, yeah, but finally, I raised my hand and I was kind of like, listen, man, I don't want to be reading stories about lynchings. She's like, were you disgusted? I said, yeah. She's like, did you like that? And that, mm. that chilled me and made me rethink horror media, you know? Yeah. Oh man, I mean that movie was just that was a wild. That was a wild time. That just the the way that it opens and I mean I have to tell you that not only have I like not I don't see a lot of movies. I don't know anything about the things I haven't seen. I very much live under a rock because I know if I'm going to see them, I don't want it spoiled. So I what? did not know where this movie was going. Mm. And so that car wreck oh. I was unprepared. Yeah. I did not see it coming. 
and I fully just trying to imagine that situation, I think it was the absolute perfect response to walk inside and go to bed because you can't you can't deal with that. There is nothing to do in that situation. You you can't how do you say those words? How do you knock on your parents' door and say, "Hey, my sister's dead." Like yeah. how do you 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 cannot do it? And I think that was the perfect choice. I know it's based on something that actually happened. I don't know if that's like the real life situation, like they just went to bed. But I truly like that's all you got to do. Like at some point you just have to hand in the towel and I'm done. I can't deal with this. Yeah. And what he also did was he made it his mom's problem. Yes. Yeah. It's really, yeah. really interesting that he he didn't do anything. You know, I assume he knew that his mom was going to use the car and he yeah. maybe subconsciously from shock or trauma, but he did make the decision that mom is going to be the one to deal with this and the burden of shock and yeah. decision yeah. is going to fall on her shoulders and maybe that's her role as my mom as she has to deal with this but yes. then flip the script get her narrative and we do see a lot of the film through her eyes of yeah. just how unfair that is to carry that burden for your entire family Mm, yeah and that does also speak to kind of a larger societal pattern of like men and boys shrugging off emotional labor onto the women in their lives especially mothers and mother figures um and i think that's that's also a really great observation um i i have this issue with so okay um the nighthouse um hereditary and Antichrist, right? There are all these movies mm -hmm. with very similar themes, but they're all made by men, which it sets off alarm bells in my head because um, they both treat the occult. Well, both. Uh, all three of these movies treat the occult um, as something that the woman is in tune with to a degree. The Nighthouse to a lesser degree. Um, mm -hmm. I have conflicting feelings about that movie's execution, but I do have to say that... Um, um, yeah, the occultism in this movie is very, and this is a superficial thing, this has nothing to do with the thematic stuff we're talking about, but it's it's approached in a very um, believable way, if that makes sense. But it's something she's only able to interface with because, because she is a woman and she has this societal expectation that she's going to nest and she's going to be emotional about things, if that makes sense. It's interesting with Hereditary, though, because speaking to what we were talking about before, I think that it's an impactful movie and it's a gripping movie, but it's not exactly a pleasant experience. So it's one of those things where it's like, do you like this movie? That's a hard one for me to answer because I think that it's very well executed. And I think that it, it tells a really powerful weird complex story very well and does you know does everything very well basically and i think one of my favorite details is just having her hover at the end mm -hmm. for dan mm -hmm. that is so chilling it's, they didn't yeah. need to do anything else it just shows you how effective the and that's the key thing be. that's the key thing with this movie because like if you watch a lot of movies like this like you watch uh, some junk like um what's that what's that stupid movie the the conjuring it's full yeah. of that that pseudo yeah. stuff you yeah. know um or something like legion where the woman's crawling old ladies crawling on the walls and the ceiling and it's not spooky it's not creepy yeah. 
this movie mm-hmm. does have those cliche elements. It has the woman levitating. It has it has the predatory woman climbing on the ceiling, but execution, right? Creep factor. Um, yeah, the execution's so good just to have the the audience, the viewer, slowly mm-hmm. recognize, oh, she's there. It like, draws you into this. It's not the center of the shot. It's just right. you're watching just the room, and then you realize, oh, my God. And just it feels like how it would happen in real life. Like you would suddenly just become aware, wait a second, what's that in the corner? Oh, my God. You know, and so it has that real kind of impactful. This is there's a there's a, a verite aspect to it where it really feels right. like there's a certain like realism there that's bringing the supernaturalism. It makes it it makes it more grounded in the way that it's going about how it's depicting it, which I think is kind of what you're getting at, too. Um, but, yeah, I think that I yeah, it's just it's a very. It's a very. um unsettling eerie movie and there's a lot of imagery that's very disturbing in it i think the girl's head obviously that's mm-hmm. the one part that i i try not to rewatch whenever i have rewatched this movie as i like will always look away from that because it's just it's too disturbing for me um and also when the mother which unfortunately i cannot remember the character's name i apologize but when the mother is like decapitating herself that imagery that imagery like oh my god that is pure nightmare (laughs) fuel and just like even the fact that like when they have her hovering at least initially i don't remember if this changes but i know when they first show her hovering like there's no music like they Mm -hmm. don't need to like they don't need to do all this to like cue you in you're supposed to be scared now the way these other kind of cheap horror movies do where it's like there's jump scares there's scary music they're really trying to get you into the feeling of being scared they're working over time to get you to be scared it invites you yeah it it invites you into an unseen world that you know like you start to accept and that's that's the really frightening thing and an unsettling thing about it and i think that it works in this particular movie because it's grounded in this story about post-traumatic stress and this woman buckling under the pressure of well her family falling apart essentially Mm, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, like at the end when like they're facing the um the effigy of Paimon with her daughter's mm-hmm. head and her son is being incarnated with the demon, mm. like come full circle and it's all happened and there's no turning back. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's a really it's a very interesting movie. What about you, Mickey? Did you have anything you wanted to throw out there? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I absolutely love this movie. I saw it for the first time this year. Um, Mm. And I wanted to touch on the scene that Kat was talking about, which is just after what happens to daughter uh, Mm -hmm. when her when she sticks her head out of the car. So that is actually my favorite scene of the movie, because I think it is a masterclass in keeping somebody at the edge of their seat keeping that um like just you're holding your breath you want to see what happened just to get that feeling done already um the suspense that's the word i'm looking for so directly Mm. after it happens there is silence in the car the sun begins to look up towards the rearview mirror but then stops himself. And then the rest of that scene is directly on his face, him fighting down those, fighting down the shock, just trying to go through the motions, getting all the way home, parking the car and then laying down. And 
even then, the suspense carries on because it is the camera is still on his face here in the back, the mother getting up, going downstairs, going to the car, and then a long scream, guttural, raw, animalistic. Mm. Yeah. And I just think that that is one of the best moments of suspense that I have ever seen because I was begging just to get like the shock out of the way. Like, just show me the head. Show Mm -hmm. me what happened so I don't have to sit with this unease, this suspense any longer. And it was so beautifully done and it has inspired me so much as a writer to try and get even a drop from that beautiful glass of suspense into my own i think it is a fantastic scene and on top of that the the uh dinner scene that you were talking about i think Mm -hmm. that is a fantastic end of the rope i finally have to talk about this moment because she explodes the mother explodes and she goes on the tangent of just at the very least i hoped that this trauma would bring us together and i think Mm -hmm. that as somebody who's gone through like something very traumatic happening my family and it tearing us apart Mm -hmm. just that moment of like fuck i wish it would have brought us together could have grieved together and yet Everybody chose to grieve on their own. The mother would even lie about going to a grieving group. She would say she's going to the movies and she mm-hmm. wouldn't invite her family. She wouldn't mm. tell her husband or let them in on what was happening. And because she was in that vulnerable space alone, um, that is why that woman was able to prey on her, a woman who was part of the Paymon cult. Mm. That is specifically why she was able to her in because she could kind of sink her claws into that vulnerability and yeah. offer something that her family wasn't offering her. Right. Which yeah. was to be acknowledged in their grief. Mm. And so um, I think that this film was fantastic. And I'm not afraid to say that I love it. <laughs> <For some reasons. laughs> like yeah. y'all were just saying like, I don't know. Can I say I like it? I'm like, uh, <laughs> y'all are cowardly. I love this shit. I mean, I like it too. I mean, I, I have I'll no get qualms about saying I like of it. it. <laughs> like, yeah. I love it. Well, um, you articulated your reasons very well. Like that makes right. sense. And I do. I think that you always, you know, come in with great observations, and this was no exception. Like that's oh, that's thank you. Really, yeah, <laughs> like, that's a really good perspective, and that's really like that makes me think about it differently. I hadn't even like really put some of those things together until you said them, and it's so true. And it's just it is like that. You know, that scene is really well done with the suspense, the fact that it makes you sit there with that discomfort. I think also the scene where she explodes. It's I think one of the things that's so great about it too is that. So many times in horror movies, I think horror movies get mocked because the people don't act like how people would actually act. You know, they hear a noise in the mm-hmm. woods that late at night and they go into the woods and explore and try to see what it is when you would actually be like, let me get away from this, you know. And so what's great about Hereditary, one of the things is that the way that the characters behave feels like how people would behave. I think one yes. of the examples that comes to mind immediately for me is with the scene at the dinner table. She, when she's yelling, 
she says that line about you just sit there with that look that look on your face that but how face on your it? face that face on your face exactly like yeah. that feels so much like how somebody would say when they're just so angry and they can't even get their words together <laughs> and they're just like that face on your face you know it feels like it feels like something that i've heard somebody say to me when they're mad at me you know it feels very familiar because it feels like how real people talk when they're upset it doesn't feel super scripted and that whole monologue feels which is really impressive for like a monologue to feel mm. so natural and off the cuff but it really does feel and also that's partly because tony collette is an amazing actress and delivers it very very well and also shout out to her performance in the sixth sense um because that's another role where she's playing a grief-stricken character and she's so fucking good in that movie. And The Sixth Sense, I don't think, gets enough love. People just want to be like, I see dead people. That movie is very sophisticated, I think, in a lot of what it does. And I think it's very good. That's my hot take. Maybe all of you hate it. I don't care. I will die on the hill. But she's great in The Sixth Sense and also playing with that grief. And she's great in this movie with and playing it in a very different way. But when she unleashes that anger and says, like, that line, like, things like that make it feel so familiar and realistic. And the fact also, like you were saying, that you know she wanted there she wanted there to be some kind of meaning she could pull from this tragedy something positive something productive oh it brought us together this is you know some kind of just any kind of anything that would be like a little bit of a, a beam of light and she can't find anything because it hasn't it's just been totally a destructive negative force which is and that feels also really real to how things are because when things awful things happen you do want to try to find the silver lining you want to look for well here's where this is there's a there's an upside and sometimes in life there is no upside sometimes you just experience horrible things and that's it and that's so hard for mm -hmm. us to accept i By think another another oh, thing it's all right um another thing that I, I really wanted to mention was uh how the mother processed grief not only <laughs> through anger but by recreating the accident through her art yes Yes. I think that that is an integral part of grieving, trying to exist alongside it and trying to process it. And the way that it grief processes for everybody is entirely unique. Uh, of course, it's very personal. But mm -hmm. I think that the way that her husband responded to her recreating it in her miniature, his disgust, and then her later in the film destroying all of her art out of rage out of grief out of just wanting to be done with this responsibility of having to deliver art to um, a showing and just what a small thing to be worried about when the rest of her life is in shambles because of something and those words that the that the people the director sent her of like i'm so sorry we were trying to understand you it's like how dare you attempt to understand what I'm going through? Mm. It's that that alienation of going through something so traumatic and so awful that how could anybody else even attempt to feel what I'm feeling? The grief goes so deep. It rots within. How could you possibly understand? Yeah. And um, I think that her attempting to process it through art is something that I really wanted to talk to the rest of you about is different ways to process grief, mm. different ways to, to just try to get through it. Um, for example, my, my grandma just lost her best friend 
of mm. many, many, many. And she called me and she said, honey, I don't know what to do with all the baked goods that I've been making because I can't get my hands to stop. Like, mm. I just need to do something where I need to measure and I need to eat and I need to just make something to try and deal with it because my brain is going so fast and I'm so lost in this like mm. profound ocean of isolation, loneliness, grief yeah. that yeah. I don't know what to do. And I don't even, I don't even want these cookies, man. <laughs> like, mm. I don't want them. What do I do? <laughs> I can't even send them over the border. What now? Yeah. And um, personally, when, when I've gone through grief, it feels like nothing I do is a, nothing I do yeah. is okay because something bad has just happened. How could I pause, sit here and watch TV? How could right. I embroider? How could I write? Mm -hmm. And so, um, what are y'all's opinions on that? Well, I think. That is a very good point. And I think, yeah, the fact that the way that she is processing this insurmountable loss is being kind of judged and looked down upon is a really good point, too, because that's also kind of speaks to sort of another ugly reality of these things is that um, the way people grieve is so scrutinized. Mm. We're going to get around to our true crime episode at some point, but you see that a lot in true crime where if the mother comes under suspicion, rightly or wrongly, a lot of times it's because she wasn't acting the way that a mother is expected to behave. And sometimes that can be true and she can be responsible or involved with the child's death, but other times it can just be a way to blame the mother and to distract from the actual case and from looking for the actual person that committed the murder. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it can be a very, very toxic, harmful thing, not just because it's you know, mean and judgmental, but also because it can lead to like real actual damage to scrutinize and judge every move of a grieving person and to think, well, I wouldn't handle it that way. So therefore that's illegitimate, you know, because it's a very individual never thing. It never makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It never makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very much each person is going to experience it differently. There might be overlap, but they're going to still, there's still going to be differences. And it's not, it's not something where, you know, it's not a one size fits all situation. The way one person grieves could be entirely different to another and it doesn't make either less valid. But I do think for me, I am somebody that believes in the stages of grief. Like I was saying, I don't necessarily think that you experience them in that neat, tidy order, but I do think those are all feelings that most people who are going through grief, except for the bargaining one, which I've never really gotten trying to make a deal with God or whatever. Like if you're religious, okay. But I guess there's other, I know there's probably other ways that that's applied, but I've only ever heard it trying to make a deal with God. I'm like, well, that's one that I've never, you know, I like that Kate Bush song as much as the next person, but I've never personally, <laughs> when I've been grieving, um so yeah but for the most part i believe in those i think like i think for me when i think of that one thing that comes to my mind as a personal experience is um so there was this weird guy that i would hang out with when i was a kid um my father and i was visiting him he lives still but i'm going to use past tense because this happened a while ago so at the time he was living in socal still lives in socal so anyway, this weird dude, my dad, he, um, I was down there visiting him. This was, I guess this was the last time I had basically been, um, 
kind of forced more or less to be shuffled between Northern and Southern California um, many times throughout my childhood and have to be an unaccompanied minor on a plane going down to visit him because my mom didn't want to bring me there. He didn't want to come up and get me. So I would just have to go down. And like, that doesn't seem as an adult, that seems, you know, kind of benign. Like, you know, it's just a flight from Northern California to Southern California. How bad could that be? But as a child, especially as a very shy child, it was really traumatic for me to have to do those flights, especially because I would get extremely emotional during the goodbyes. And to this day, I have a lot of trouble saying goodbye to people. And I think I can honestly trace it back to to that. I like I like to do, I have sort of a, a goofy thing that I do with my friends where I don't say goodbye when I'm on the phone with them. I'll just hang up. I'll say something funny and then just hang up. And they know that this is like a thing that I do. So it's like, don't take offense. But the real reason is that I do it isn't to be funny. It's because I honestly have a hard time saying goodbye. Like I just in general do. And I would get very, very emotional during these airport goodbyes. It was really horrible and hard on me as a, you know, six-year-old, seven-year-old to have to stand at the airport and say goodbye to my father and board an airplane by myself. And, you know, not knowing when would be the next time I would see him. Because at the time I was attached to him. Looking back on it now, I'm, I'm like, I don't know why I was attached to him. But I was at the time. You know, when you're a child, you don't realize uh, that people are terrible. But anyway, the point is, so the last time I saw him, I was older. And it had been three years since I had seen him. I think I was, God, how old was I? I was like 12, 13, somewhere around that age. Um, and it had been three years since the last time I'd seen him. And um, I had done the whole song and dance, which I hadn't wanted to do, but I'd been talked into it again, roped into it. Now I'd started to kind of like advocate for myself a little bit more, have a little bit more agency. So I think I had expressed that I didn't really want to keep doing those flights. But um, I was pressured into it because his sister was visiting and my mom really wanted me to get to know my aunt who I didn't really know. And so this was an opportunity and she was, her son was going to be there as a whole like little family reunion thing. So I went down and saw him and the, the whole trip just felt very weird and off kilter to me. Like it was it was strange because I was feeling feelings that I had not felt before when I had previously seen him. Like I wasn't just feeling sad at the goodbye. I was feeling sad the whole time and just like sort of haunted really as I was kind of going through these places that I had known, you know, years earlier as a child and seeing them again when I was just slightly older, but they suddenly seemed very different to me and everything just looked a lot darker. And I was seeing my mm -hmm. father in a very different light. And I was realizing, oh, this is a man that is very deeply flawed. And I had never noticed those flaws before. He had, first of all, concealed them more when I was younger. And second of all, I was not, you know, in tune to those sorts of things. And I was becoming aware of this. And I wasn't really, I wasn't really thinking of how I was feeling as any sort of like grief or loss. But it's interesting because looking back on it, I just have this one very specific memory of it where basically um, I had said to him, because at the time and when I was younger, I really thought my dad knew everything. I thought he was like this genius, genius, brilliant guy. Um, and so at one point we were driving and I have no idea what was making me think of it, but I was thinking of the stages of grief and I couldn't remember what bargaining meant, the making a deal with God thing. And so I asked him, because I, I thought he knew everything. So I said to him, and it's just interesting that I don't know why I was thinking of the stages of grief, but that's like a subconscious thing. Like now looking back on it, it makes sense to me because I think I was starting to kind of go through my own sort of grieving process of grieving the loss of this relationship and the loss of who I thought my father was. And so um, 
I asked him because I thought he knew everything. Um, and I said to him, I can't remember what bargaining means in the stages of grief. What does it mean? And I just assumed he would know because I assumed he knew everything. And he said, what are you talking about? And I was like, you know, the stages of grief. And he's like, that sounds like something a psychiatrist too much time on their hands came up with. I don't know anything oh my about gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's all he had to say to it. And I was shocked because I really thought he would at least be familiar with it. Like who hasn't at least heard of the stages of grief? Even if you don't know off the top of your head, all five of them. And it really took me aback. But that moment was extremely significant to me because that moment completely shattered my illusion of him. Before that, I thought this was a man that could not be wrong. And if I thought something, if I thought something he said was wrong, I had to be wrong because he was this genius, brilliant person. And that was the first time I realized, oh, he doesn't know everything. There's a lot of things he actually doesn't know and isn't ed educated on. And his opinion is not the be-all, end-all, and the things he believes are not necessarily true or valid or good. And that was kind of like the freedom I needed to let go of that relationship and to start seeing him for the person he was rather than the person that I had thought he was when I was a very young child. And so when I think of grief, that's one of the first things that comes to mind for me is because in a very real way, I feel like I have grieved the loss of my dad and I've personally put that relationship to bed and I have personally you know told him that I don't want to have a relationship with them and cut off contact and um so like it's it's sort of it is like a death in some ways obviously it's not I don't want to like you know step on any toes of somebody that's actually lost a parent because I have not but I do think it's there's this kind of a similar there's similar there's overlap between the processes of processing the loss of a parent, processing the loss of who you thought your parent was, and processing the end of a relationship with your parent, and going through the highs and lows in that. And I've definitely shed a lot of tears over it, because I still wish he could be that person I thought he was, but ultimately I had to make peace with the fact that he wasn't, he never was that, and that he didn't really ever have my best interest at heart, and was never really a, a good father or even a father at all to me, hence why I referred to him as that weird guy I used to hang out with as a kid. So, um, yeah, so that for me is one of the things that comes to my mind and one of the ways that grief could be powerful and also can at times be positive. There are times that grief can just be a totally unproductive, horrible thing. But there are also times when going through that process, you can come out the other side with clearer eyes, especially if it's more of a metaphorical grieving thing. If you didn't actually lose somebody, but you're realizing you want to end a relationship, you want to end a stage of your life and you can grieve the loss of that, but then ultimately come out the other side a better person for it. So I have complicated feelings on it, but I do think sometimes it can be productive, I guess, is my summation. That was a very long story. But anyway, that's that's my my feelings for, for one thing. Lilith, Who I could listen to you talk for hours, Erin. <laughs> You're so sweet, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, I yeah. So um okay. Who would like to I've I've had the floor long enough. I've been hogging the spotlight. Who would like to talk? I mean, the question I, love, I love to talk, but, you know. <laughs> the question, again, as a reminder, is, like, what people think about the grieving process. That's what you're asking about, Mickey, right? I, I, I don't know if I've taken the floor so much yeah. now. I've even forgotten how people feel like, about the grieving process themselves. And, and how to like, cope. Yeah. Oh, I thought we were talking about Transformers. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, no, but uh, seri in all seriousness, though, um, like, I, I don't know. I have different dimensions of grief i i suppose um i should point out that um i was diagnosed with type 2 bipolar which i understand is the more manageable one so i am you know medicated for that obviously mm -hmm. so 
So, uh, yeah, obviously, I lost a sister when I was very young. Mm-hmm. She drowned at a pool party. Nobody was watching her. My uh, wonderful mother was in the house and on the phone. Um, and, yeah, mm-hmm. um, people realized that she was missing. And uh, one of my aunts dove down and found her at the bottom of the pool. And Oh, God. Yeah, her father, who I hadn't seen for many years at that point. Um, that was my mother's second husband. Very, very, mm-hmm. yeah, very sweet man, you know, cool guy. Um, I don't even know what happened. But anyway, I was in the back of the car in the hospital parking lot um, after, I think this before I kissed her goodbye. Um, you know, um, she was on the table and he burst into the car and he took her Barney sneakers off me. It was just wandering through the uh, parking lot, mumbling her name. And I, it was the first time I'd seen anyone, you know, um, completely break, um, you know, like that. So, yeah. yeah. So I spent a while, um, you know, coloring on the walls, drawing pictures of her, um, mm-hmm. you know, drawing pictures of her with Mickey Mouse and things like that. Baby Bob. You, you people, do you guys even know what Barney is? Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I thought I might have to. Okay. Anyway. Um, but yeah. Um, That's awful. I'm really sorry you went through that. Well, it's yeah. awful. But, you know, I, I went through a period where I was writing, you know, poetry about her and stuff. And then it closed. Um, it mm. was like a black pit that I just sort of crawled out of. And um, I stopped visiting the grave. I stopped talking to her. I stopped, you know, telling her about what was going on. Because, like, the reality was that she wasn't there. Um yeah, when I was about thirteen, I, I I went to a religious school. I went to yeshiva, which is the Jewish mm-hmm. Catholic school, I guess. It's the closest yeah. parallel. Yeah, and um, I just took it for granted that uh, you know, all those stories we were being told about people living in whales and giants and uh, uh, you know, worldwide floods that never happened. I, I just assumed they were all true because we had this this book, the the Torah, the Bible, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I started, I, I discovered the internet and learned that, um, that, you know, Egypt is a six day walk from Israel. Um, King David is not a historical figure. Uh, the Bible is not used by archaeologists because, and, and I just never looked back. I was like, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, like um, a lot of, um, I learned cynicism, I suppose. I learned criticism. Um, and um, yeah, um, at the end of the day, I just, like my sister, it's very interesting. Jola doesn't uh, appear in my writing. Um, like every girl I've dated is somewhere. Uh, they're they're starting to pop up in my Demon Land series, and my yeah. mother even is even there. And she's this. She's someone I also have a lot of grief for. It's ongoing right. grief. You know, mm-hmm. I uh, Justin, uh, my boyfriend, he doesn't like when I do this, but I, I'll often refer to her as my late mother because she's uh, she's effectively dead to me. All I have mm-hmm. left of her some incredible paintings that she painted. I was trying to teach her how to sell her art and do commissions on the internet. And she was just waiting around for me to start giving her money so she could buy more drugs, you know? Mm. Um, you know, my mother is a, kind of a Titanic figure. Um, my siblings, they're, they're a lot younger than me. Um, the oldest one is nine years younger than me. Um, and the rest are a year. I have eight siblings that are still alive. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, they're all a year apart, so they haven't mm-hmm. realized that, you know, our mother was uh, not the brightest person and kind of uh, 
kind of insane. I mean, I remember when I was a lot younger, I asked her if, um, you know, woolly mammoths evolved into elephants, right? And she responded, I don't believe that, you know, as if like, mm-hmm. it's even, right. yeah, I mean, and, right. and, that, and that's, a, that's a pretty petty anecdote to tell. But basically, um, the fact that my mother uh, threw me out um, when I was 16, 17, I can't remember. Um, like, I had this, like, after dealing with years of abuse and, you know, kind of a really rough childhood, um, I didn't trust people. And I would go out of my way to destroy the the friend circles I was building at the, my new high school. And then I would come to my friends all sad, and I just, it, it was like clockwork, you know? And uh, it took me a long time to really realize what I was doing, how self-destructive and toxic it was. And, mm. uh yeah i mean obviously now i'm a lot older um i have i've done a fair bit of therapy um i i am medicated obviously you know and um i have things firmer on hand but grief i mean it's a thing that comes and it's a thing that goes i find especially in regards to like my mother it's funny Mm -hmm. My sister, Ajola, like, you know, like uh, in Batman comics, um, he'll always, you know, Bruce Wayne will visit um, the place where his parents died and he'll right. leave a rose. Right. He'll leave yeah. a rose. And it's this motivating thing that keeps him going. But that's not quite how it plays out for me. Um, I feel like I've grown mm-hmm. past it, you know? Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. Like, you know, she's, she's, she's gone. Um, yeah. That's, then that's also a really interesting perspective of feeling like, you've kind of reached that last stage of the five stages, which is acceptance. Right. To some extent move past it. And that's, and that's another thing that I don't feel like is represented enough in media. Cause we see like the, you know, the Bruce Wayne imagery of somebody that's eternally haunted by his parents passing and will never get over it. And that motivates kind of everything he does. Yeah. Like, like I have romantic relationships that I, I mourn more than that. You know what I mean? Mm, Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. Cause especially since it happened when you were so young, but, um, and also it it is interesting though, cause I, I get what you're saying. Cause you know, that's like, I, that's how I feel too about with my father. Like, I feel like he does seem basically dead to me because he is dead to me. You know, Mm -hmm. he's not dead, but he's dead to me. And that is, something um and that is something worth grieving i think and so you know i have grieved over it and it's it's tough it can be kind of hard at times to feel like you know and it's hard also when talking to people and they want to know about your parents and it's like do i just say that he's dead because it's, it's easier to say that than to explain the whole situation so it's it's there's a lot of tricky things to navigate and it's a very it's a very weird feeling but it's it is something that does feel like the like essentially you've lost a parent even if it's not to death you've you've lost a parent and um I also I had the I have a lot of trust issues too so I do think that's interesting I think that that yeah it does when you have that sort of upbringing I do think that just lends itself very easily to a mistrust of people. And that's the thing also about grief is that it has such a ripple effect and it can just, it can affect us in differing ways profoundly, even years later, even in ways that our subconscious that we might not realize are connected to the loss of whatever it is or whatever it was, mm-hmm. whoever it was, but it can still have the ripple effect that will, you know, impact us for years to come. Um, and so yeah, I think all of what you said is really, really interesting and insightful. And um, Kat, did you have anything you wanted to share? Yeah, so um, I think 
for me, the way that I grieved is that I didn't for mm-hmm. most of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost my mom when I was seven. Um, I actually found her. And that didn't register as trauma to me until I was an adult. Mm. And I lost my dad when I was 15 and lived in multiple houses and everything. And I kind of did everything to not face it, to not feel it. And Mm. very much that idea of, oh, I'm not going to let this define me. I'm going to move past it. I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to be sad. And turns out that's like a really terrible idea. Mm. You kind of have to feel these things. And kind of what started this with Mickey talking about the art, I think that's how I fell in love with horror and specifically Mm. grief horror because it's really saying, hey, feel everything. It's going to be brutal. It's going to hurt. You're going to cry. You might feel revulsion, but you will feel it yeah and i mean i guess maybe denial if we're doing the five stages is the i refuse to feel anything that kind of a denial yeah and then you have to go through all of the rest of them yeah and that's been like still ongoing of i just sometimes like there's nothing better than reading a a book and just absolutely sobbing and yeah loving that because you're capable of it you're able to feel that pain and you're able to more quickly process it because it is contained and it isn't happening to your life but it's almost a skill to have to learn how to feel things when you've spent a really long time thinking that that was bad and Mm -hmm. you know especially the idea that you're not supposed to have those negative emotions when, you know, I have a very um, Baptist family, a very Mm -hmm. Southern Baptist Mm -hmm. family. Um, And so there was always the, I mean, like I, I did my dad's laundry after my mom died. Like, and that was also very traditional Italian. The the men don't do anything. So my Nana taught us how to like Mm -hmm. iron my dad's clothes because that was like our job now. Oh my gosh. And wow. so it was just, yeah, it's, I mean, it's super messed up, but people don't really know what they're doing when you're faced with something like that. Like, I don't, Yeah. it took a minute to not like hold things against people. Uh, Therapy is mm-hmm. great, guys. Uh, recommend that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I it's agree. just like an ongoing process of grief. And it is interesting, kind of like you were saying, Daniel, that sometimes you're done and sometimes you're like, yeah, this is. I I think I've I think I've done it but then sometimes it comes back and you're like oh well that's an interesting part like that yeah. side hadn't been hit yet mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. we're going to we're going to look at this and we're going to experience what that looks like and we're going to try to work through that I think it's kind of a constant thing for anything it doesn't just have to be a death I mean sometimes you grieve yourself and what you mm. could have been and the life yeah. that you maybe could have led or you feel you should have led. And yeah, yeah. I just now I just want to I want to feel everything. I didn't know I was writing grief horror till I learned it was a subgenre. Mm. Um, I didn't yeah. know that was a thing people would do. 
And mm-hmm. now it's like my favorite little, like if anyone says this is grief horror, I'm like, oops, I bought it. Sorry. I didn't mean to, but I guess I'm reading this and crying now. That's going to be my night. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, I think that is something that is attractive about the horror genre. I know for me personally, what got me into the horror genre is that I became um, acutely aware of my own mortality at about seven. And before that, I had understood it in a very abstract sort of way, but it wasn't real to me. And then at about seven, the reality of it hit me, which is that, oh, I'm going to die someday and it will be final and permanent. And I just I knew I didn't believe in any kind of afterlife and I wanted to, but I just didn't. And so all of a sudden, all these things were hitting me, all these revelations um, that were kind of way too much for that age. And I think that's one of the main things that attracted me to the horror genre, especially um, I was always very fond of paranormal pieces of media, whether they were horror or not, whether they were comedies like Beetlejuice or Ghostbusters or whether they were The Sixth Sense. I watched a lot of ghost-related media because I found the idea of ghosts very comforting. And um, I just, I really loved the idea of there being something after death. And so to me, even though, I would be at times watching these scary movies, the fact that they were ghosts, even if they were malevolent ghosts, it was still sort of like almost reassuring. There was something about it that made me feel better and made me have an easier time, I think, dealing with the concept of death and my own mortality and facing that. So that's the thing is like, I don't think people realize that horror can be actually quite comforting and that the people that enjoy it, they don't just enjoy it because, oh, you know, we like to get scared. We like to, you know, be freaked out by things like, no, it can be very complicated. The reasons why you're attracted to horror and the reasons why you enjoy the genre. And it can yeah, have a lot I, of I, Yeah. I think one of the most brain dead things I ever heard someone say, um, I was talking about the haunting of Hill house, um, with someone mm-hmm. and, you know, this is a show about, I mean, we're talking about grief and death. I mean, you know, I'm not going to get into it here, but, you know, I'm describing this this horrifying scene where they're all talking about how the sister died and they're all sad about it. And the one the one character who never really connected with her, he he comes home to find her specter standing there facing him with her her lips blue from from freezing. Wow. And she can't speak because she's just a specter and she fades. And it uh, it chilled me. And, I, and, he, and he turned to me and he said. Uh, I didn't like it. It wasn't very scary. And I'm just like, bitch, motherfucker, you know, like, <laughs> scary doesn't come into it, you stupid, you know, yeah. <laughs> goat farmer, yeah. you know, like, fucking, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's fair. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, um I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you can go. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, my thing is, I love monsters. Um, mm-hmm. my, one of my well, my favorite movie is uh, Frankenstein, the James Whale movie from 1931. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that he wears a suit, but he can't speak. Um, I mm. love that he's he's large, but he's a uh, he, he desires to be gentle, but he's a monster. He's on a, he's not yeah accepted. yeah um, yeah. We could do an entire episode about monsters. Yeah, but, which we probably should at some point. Well, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure we'll get to it. But my thing is that like. You know, I tend to see these 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 incredible premises, and they're wasted on being horror movies. Yeah, something like yeah. The Purge. You're like, oh, what a great yeah. idea! Yeah, all crimes legal. But then you're just watching a home invasion movie with Mitt Romney's family. You know, 
yeah, like some some so rich white awesome. guy and it's like no yeah. i want him to die there's no horror here like yeah yeah, yeah. yeah no you're 100% right there's a lot of great there's a lot of great plots that horror movies have that are just kind of wasted on jump scares and just yeah. bad cgi and whatever i so, will say that i will say that um you know uh, like a lot of boys and this is very normal for boys i saw some pretty horrific violent things as a child right like i saw um robocop I saw Terminator, and I wasn't scared of the, or turned or turned off or whatever by the horror. I, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. So, you know, watching something like Jason and seeing, you know, seeing tits and, you know, I don't know, throats getting slit and stuff. I, yeah, I mean, maybe that's not horror, right? Not really. But right. Yeah. 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 That that makes sense. And Cat, uh, I also did want to say I'm very sorry about your loss. That sounds. Yes. Really horrific to have gone through. And um, I mean, it's amazing that you've made it out the other side of having gone through all that and that you're such a capable, talented, awesome person. Um, That's really an achievement in and of itself, in my opinion. Definitely. And um, I want to talk about my own personal grief a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, especially Mm -hmm. after hearing Kat, because Mm -hmm. I just kind of realized. I am the, I'm in like the earlier stages of what Kat was describing. Mm. Um, so I have not grieved what has happened very much in my life. I think there's been small moments of grief, moments of, of just upset and, and anger. And how could somebody do that to me? Like, um, Whenever I think about the things that have happened, I always list it as almost like a laundry list. And when I was seeing a therapist a few years ago, I can't really afford a therapist now. I really need therapy, though. Mm. I'm going to work toward That's kind of a goal is to save up enough to start <laughs> going to therapy, like maybe once yeah. or twice a month. Um, yeah. Whenever I would go to a therapist, it would just be a laundry list of like, okay, here's all the things that happened between like 12 and like 22 so what are we gonna do about that like how are we gonna like grieve through this like what what like which one should we go for first like um and a part of me almost just wants to like say that laundry list just to be like almost get reassurance like oh shit yeah you should probably grieve that but i don't know if that's helpful because i think that for a very, very, very long time, uh, I would not almost, I, I almost wouldn't deny it. I would dissociate. And mm. I s- struggled a lot with severe dissociation as mm. um, a child, a teenager, and a young adult. Like, I, f- I kind of tell my friends around me, like, I feel like I kind of didn't start existing until maybe a couple weeks before I turned 24. Like, Mm -hmm. and that's just because like, it was just one thing after another, like mom died, dad's a drunk, my brother's Mm -hmm. absent. I was trafficked. I was in really abusive relationships, like just Mm -hmm. so many awful things right after another that like, I almost can't get into it. And like, that's something that I worked on with a therapist for a little while was just like, I want to talk about these things. I'm ready to grieve. I am giving you money to show the fact that I am ready. I am choosing this. 
because I was put into therapy as a child, but it did nothing because I was actively going through trauma. So like you can't work on trauma if it's happening. You know, like it's very mm, difficult yeah. to heal when you're being hurt. Yeah. At the same mm-hmm. time. Mm, and so yeah. um when I was talking to my therapist this last time, I was in the middle of like a very mentally abusive marriage, actually. And I got divorced a couple of weeks before I turned 24. I was actually mm. served papers on my 24th birthday, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um <laughs> and yeah, it's wild. Um, so crazy. But when I was talking to my therapist, at the same time that like I kind of didn't recognize I was still not able to heal because I was being hurt. One thing that my therapist said to me was like, hey, I actually can't work with you because whenever we start to talk about something, you're gone. Like I can see that you're not in the room. Mm. And like that's a difficult thing to not be able to grieve because my body shuts down. Yeah. And because like I've lost so much time. And when we were doing like a bit of a preamble to this episode a couple weeks back talking about okay, we're going to talk about grief. What's everybody going to share? I was like, I actually have no idea how I'm going to talk about this cuz I feel like I wasn't present for any of it. Mm. Like I I feel like I haven't been present until I turned 24. And maybe then I I was able to grieve a bit. But on top of that, there was this huge embarrassment of going through a divorce. Even though Mm. I didn't love that person, and that person and I were completely awful for each other. We brought out the absolute worst in each other. And they did so many terrible, terrible things. Complete Mm. mindfuck. (laughs) A lot of like you should be able to see the truth in my lies because if you actually love me, you would know what the truth is and then you would act on the truth and I shouldn't have to tell you what it is. Uh, and you're a toxic partner for not knowing the truth. And it's like, uh, whoa. <laughs> yeah. So just absolute crazy bullshit. And yeah. I felt like I couldn't talk to people about it because I was so ashamed and so embarrassed of going through a divorce that I like couldn't grieve it very well because I I Mm -hmm. couldn't reach out to anybody like I of course I had to tell my dad and my my grandparents and my brother but there was such a fear of telling them because I didn't I thought that they would be angry with me for failing this marriage um and so like I don't think I'm at a point where I have processed grief in any meaningful way and Mm. I think that in doing this episode I'm kind of realizing like hey maybe I don't 100% know what grief is like personally Mm. Mm -hmm. that's really interesting too and I think yeah because I was never present for any of it like a Mm. very severe dissociation like can't remember a lot of anything before 19 so it's right yeah it's awful and i'm so sorry that you went through all those things and and like i was saying to i mean i don't remember it so (laughs) (laughs) well that's that's one benefit of having dissociated from it but i will say like i said with kat i mean you've come out the other side a really wonderful amazing generous kind beautiful person 
So I think that is a victory in and of itself. And I think that's another thing that I think is important to keep in mind when we're talking about grief and stuff is to practice self-kindness and empathy and to realize, you know, it's fine that I'm feeling this way. It's valid that I'm feeling this way. And to also give yourself credit for, you know, however far you've come and for, you know, being able just to make it through a day, you know, just get through the day, you know, that in and of itself is a victory. And to have come as far as both of you have come and to be such wonderful, delightful, amazing people, I think is really impressive after everything both of you have been through. So I, mean, I think everyone in this room, well, in this call, yeah. has done one of the most brave things in the world, which is to face grief. Even mm. if it's even if it's been extremely difficult, even if it's been like slow on the onset, like for right. Kat, or if it has taken its turn and it's come through to fruition of of acceptance like Daniel or mm -hmm. Lilith just the acceptance of it's okay for me to be grieving this like I don't need to face judgment especially yeah. from yourself mm -hmm. I think that there's mm -hmm. such bravery for everybody here for going through what we did and for still like waking up today and brushing our teeth you know <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and yeah. I don't think that that should be discounted and I think that there should be more conversations like that. I think that grief is such a hush-hush thing. Yeah. And yeah. I feel eternally grateful to my grandma for always talking to me about death and grief ever since my mom passed. Like, <laughs> she's been saying she's going to die any day now for, like, 10 years. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, and, like, there's some humor to that, of course. And obviously, right. I deal with shit through humor. Yes. A lot of I people do. Yeah. Um, but I think that the vulnerability that was shown today, I hope that anybody who is listening kind of takes a moment to s accept that vulnerability is an okay thing to experience, that it's actually a beautiful thing to experience and it brings a lot of people closer. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our mad and mournful January episode and that you'll check out the bonus material. As always, you can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or on Instagram at monstrous underscore femme. You can also support the show by rating it and or leaving a positive review, which would be very kind and much appreciated. Until next time, stay monstrous.